You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, How to Turn Your Independent Film into a Money-Making Business by Alex Ferrari. For a free copy of the audiobook, head over to www.filmbizbook.com. Welcome to the Director Series Podcast, a show dedicated to deconstructing the work of some of cinema's most celebrated and influential film directors. I'm your host, Cameron Bile. Tired of hacking those additions, tired of starving. So I figured, what's the use? By the way, what do you do? You won't believe it. Try me. I produce. Woven from a musical tapestry of jazz standards and new compositions by John Kander and Fred Ebb, New York, New York paints an affectionate and romantic portrait of its beloved city at the dawn of a hopeful new era. On VJ Day, the official end of World War II in 1945, a brash young jazz saxophonist named Jimmy Doyle arrives at a big celebration gala put on by the USO and winds up at the table of Minnelli's Francine Evans, an ambitious young singer with stars in her eyes. Nevertheless, said eyes are clear enough to spot a cad when she sees one, and her rejection of Jimmy's lame pickup lines only emboldens him further. Thus begins a grand love affair worthy of a Hollywood musical, in which they go on the road together on a cross-country tour and help each other realize their full potential. The only problem is Francine's potential is much, much higher. Jimmy's love of jazz translates to a dependence on improvisation that grates on the ears of potential bookers. In a move that would eventually become an example of Scorsese's life imitating his art, an envious Jimmy leaves Francine at a critical juncture, the birth of their son. Though its ascetic interests lie in a flashy, old-fashioned style, the film's narrative intent centers on a modern, complicated story about the waxing and waning of romantic love over time, as well as the explosive chemistry that can result from mismatched artistic styles. Despite the lavish production values and large groups of bodies constantly moving through the frame, including boxcar Bertha's Barry Primus in a pivotal role, New York, New York really is an intimate examination of the connection between two people. De Niro's third collaboration with Scorsese results in yet another bold protagonist, a womanizer and self-interested man whose insatiable ambition might doom him to a life of loneliness. Just as he had driven a taxi cab for 12 hours a day while preparing for Taxi Driver, De Niro prepared for his role here by not just learning how to play the saxophone, but mastering it to the point where it sounds like he's played all his life. As the daughter of screen legend Judy Garland, Minnelli has been preparing for the role of a glamorous starlet all her life, and yet brings her signature idiosyncrasies to the fore as a way to imbue modern dimensionality to a stock archetype we've seen hundreds of times before. Indeed, the pursuit of dimensionality informs every aspect of New York, New York's production, subverting the flat, proscenium-style theatricality that has become a hallmark of Hollywood musicals. In a bid to achieve the old-fashioned grandeur and slickness of the genre, Scorsese would turn to the venerable cinematographer Laszlo Kovacs, who uses all the studio resources at his disposal to create a sweeping, romantic picture that stands in stark contrast to the gritty realism of Scorsese's previous work. He and Kovacs paint in the broad strokes of wide compositions, expressionistic lighting schemes, and soaring camera work, never shying away from the inherent artifice of production designer Boris Levin's sets and fake facades. Similar to street sets built for Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut two decades later, 
New York, New York scenery foregoes outright realism in order to better evoke our collective mental image of a romantic old New York. The narrative's central conflict, Francine's disciplined and controlled singing versus Jimmy's knee-jerk rebellion towards sheet music, is reinforced by the intentional collision of ascetic theatricality and the method realism of the film's performances. Scorsese's experiment doesn't quite work 100% of the time, but when it does, it feels groundbreaking. More importantly, it remains consistent with its creator's distinct artistic voice. New York, New York is arguably the ultimate test in Scorsese's commitment to the power of documentary, creating an atmosphere where such pursuits should be all but impossible. Nevertheless, Scorsese manages to draw out a sense of immediacy and realism thanks to the aforementioned juxtaposition of contemporary performance techniques, as well as signature outbursts of messy, chaotic violence. Where New York, New York really earns its keep as a Scorsese film, however, is in its obvious passion for the Hollywood musical tradition. Far more than just an example of a filmmaker wanting to try his or her own hand at a cornerstone genre of the art form, Scorsese's film synthesizes several decades' worth of fascination and affection with a generation's collective desire to push far beyond the established boundaries of visual language. Coming from a filmmaker who also spent many years teaching film, it's an academic deconstruction of the genre as a whole, done in an attempt to figure out what makes it tick, while attempting to bridge the inherent divide between theatricality and reality. New York, New York is very much in line with the anti-establishment films of its era, but it may very well have been too late to the party. Only a week prior, a week, George Lucas released Star Wars to unprecedented success. The audience changed nearly overnight, effectively killing the market for smaller, unconventional films like Scorsese's for many years to come. Lucas's creative sensibilities proved even more prescient as Scorsese labored to whittle his initial four-hour cut down to size, judging from an anecdote in which he advised Scorsese to give the film a happy ending for De Niro Minnelli in exchange for an additional $10 million at the box office. The exchange reportedly left Scorsese in despair, overcome with the perception that he didn't have what it took to be a mainstream Hollywood filmmaker. In reality, however, Scorsese's sudden downward trajectory had nothing to do with his unbending commitment to narrative integrity. Indeed, his misguided decision to forge ahead with improvisation was only a small factor in the film's perceived failure. A confluence of conditions, his spiraling cocaine addiction, his extramarital affair with Minnelli, a sea change in audience moviegoing tastes, resulted in what critic Pauline Kale would rather generously describe as an honest failure. That said, failure may not be the best word to describe New York, New York's reception. It did make a profit, however meager earning $16.4 million against a $14 million budget. And it did make a major, enduring contribution to American pop culture by introducing the song of the same name, which Frank Sinatra would cover in 1979 to resounding success. The song has since become a cornerstone of the city's cultural identity, far outshining the legacy of the film from which it sprang. Though Scorsese's film has since undergone something of a minor critical re-evaluation, and his daring impulse to juxtapose the visual conceits of the old Hollywood musical with grounded, unglamorous performances has come to be admired, and even replicated in more recent works like La La Land and Annette, Scorsese couldn't help but be consumed by its initial disappointing reception. The aura of unstoppable momentum had dissipated, revealing the flaws of Scorsese's inherent humanity. This feeling only magnified when he tried his hand on Broadway, directing Minnelli in a new musical called The Act, that also met with swift disaster. His marriage to Cameron was quickly disintegrating, 
and not even the birth of their daughter Domenica a year prior could save it. The more he saw himself circling the drain, the faster he contributed to its spiral. Increasingly resigned to the fatalistic conviction that he wouldn't live to see 40, a rudderless Scorsese gave himself fully over to an inert lifestyle of hard partying, substance abuse, and chemical excess. The dreams seemed over before it had truly begun, but thankfully, destiny had different plans in store. Thank you for listening to the Director Series. For a deeper dive into your favorite filmmakers, go to www.directorseries.net. The Director Series is made possible in large part by our generous supporters on Patreon. Please visit us at patreon.com backslash directorseries to see how your contribution enables the continued production of video essays and text articles on your favorite contemporary and classic film directors. Thank you.